you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Colossians. This morning, we find ourselves as we're walking through this book in the New Testament in chapter 2, where we'll be looking at verses 8 through 15. Follow along with me as I read verses 8, 9, and 10 for our text this morning, where Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all the rule and authority. Pray with me. Father, we pray that your word would now speak to us and change us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the early 1900s, the country of Russia was in civil war. It was known as the Bolshevik Revolution. And it was a group of individuals, mostly learned academic men that led it, most prominently known as Vladimir Lenin and his sidekick, Leon Trotsky. And their attempt was, in the early 1900s, was to throw, overthrow over 300 years of dynastic rule. They ended up winning this feat and Lenin goes on and he leads the party for some years until he has a medical condition and a brain hemorrhage and he ultimately dies. Now everyone thought in the midst of that that Trotsky was the guy to take Lenin's place to lead Russia. But what history began to tell us as history began to unfold, another person was waiting in the wings, a man by the name of Joseph Stalin, who took over and began to rule that country with a great strong arm. He began to deceive and he began to remove those who would be counterparts to his way of thinking. He would eliminate you at, at any cost if you even looked at him wrong in some instances or he perceived you as a, as a potential threat. Stalin goes on and, and he serves Russia for well over 30 to 40 years and he does incredibly horrible things, but perhaps one of the most noteworthy was in 1932 and 33 known as the Haldemore death toll. In the midst of Stalin's reign, he looked into the country of Ukraine and he said that anyone there in that country that owns more than eight acres of land, he labeled them in that moment, they were known as the Kulaks. And Stalin began to implement his plan, what was known as collectivism at the time. That the state would then take over all the land and the farmland and, and anyone who had over eight acres was deemed a kulak. And so how Stalin dealt with these men and these women as he lined up a third of them and he shot them. He lined up another third of them and he sent them off to work camps and he lined up another third and he sent them off to the gulag. It is said that Stalin is personally responsible of killing close to three to four million people as the government took over and famine soon incurred in the country of Russia. Historians don't exactly agree, but conservative estimates believe that Stalin's way of living, his philosophy, if you will, of deceit, killed anywhere conservatively between 6 million, but most would contend that his numbers are closer to 20 million. Being influenced by German thought, uh, thought leaders by the name of Karl Marx, he implemented his way of living and ultimately ends up taking the lives of millions of people. Now, when Paul writes Colossians 2, he doesn't quite know the empty philosophies and the deceits that, that would eventually come and take reign over the world. But I think in this moment, what Paul is doing is he is reminding and he is warning us as a people of God about the philosophies and the deceit that often can exist. And so we see 
In verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. No one takes you captive by empty deceit. In this moment, he was not putting down philosophy in and of itself because philosophy just simply means the love of wisdom. Everything that has to do with the theories about God, the, the world, the meaning of human life, in this moment, as Paul writes, it was described as philosophy. To love the wisdom that comes from exploring those topics and exploring those themes. And what Paul was doing is he was pushing back against the dangerous philosophies that made up both elements of both Judaism and both Greek Gnosticism. The idea that you had to achieve at a certain level in a plane of, of special knowledge and special revelation. And so the Gnostics would contend to the church in Colossae that they had all of the secret knowledge. They had all the secret understanding. And that if you wanted to really know God, you had to know what the Gnostics were teaching. And so Paul is warning and he gives us, I think in the text, really four characteristics in this verse about what this philosophy actually is. He describes it in verse eight, first and foremost, just simply saying it was empty deceit. It sounded great in, in one sense, but the deceit was greatly deceptive. The idea that was before him, there was something else going on to, to watch my left hand as my right hand does something else. It was empty deceit, similar to what we can hear today in our modern age in politics and, and academics and science and even in the study of religion. But secondly, he says it not only was empty deceit, it was according to human tradition, it came from human tradition. These false teachers presented their philosophy as having, being rooted in antiquity. They would say that we have the real knowledge, the, the old knowledge, and, and here's our newer revelation that sort of speaks to it. And they would, they would give this deception, if you will, some sort of dignity, and they would say it is from God. Do you know, friends, that every famous cult leader, every cult that has ever existed, even if they claim new revelation, they disguise it oftentimes in deceptions of ancient origin. It was empty and it came from human tradition, but I also want you to notice that this philosophy that he says, don't let it take you captive, it was demon controlled in this moment. Verse eight, he uses the phrase, the elemental spirits of the world. Now these demonic spirits in Paul's mind were thought to control the, the world in which they lived in. They were thought to control the, the world order, if you will. And so what Paul does is he argues that these evil forces, these elemental spirits were in control of this false doctrine that had infiltrated the church. This doctrine that, that was sort of clothed in truth, if you will, but many of the Colossians, Colossians were being led astray by it. They were attempting to bring them back, if you will, into the bondage that they were once in before they came to know the fullness of Christ. That you've been saved and you, you prayed a prayer and you're walking with Jesus, but, but now all of these empty deceits and philosophies are coming in, seeking to pull you back to the life you once lived, to the bondage in which held you hostage before you knew Christ. And Paul is simply saying, do not be led astray by these. Do not be uh, taken captive by these. It teaches us, I think that deception is often clouded with a whole lot of truth and some subtle errors that exist within there. 
Deception oftentimes masks itself in the context of, of this is truth or this is the word. And yet in the midst of that statement, we, we ask the question, but, but what does that mean? And, and clothed and cloaked somewhere in the midst of that is that little subtle error that exists that, that ultimately what we see the Gnostics were doing with the church in Colossae, they were leading them astray with these little subtle errors. They were sprinkling it with a little bit of truth to get them to come onto their side and, and to leave the, the doctrine, to leave the faith once and all. But lastly, I want you to see not only was it demonically controlled and influenced, but it was enslaving to them. We see in the beginning of verse 8, he uses that word captive. To not let anyone see to it that no one takes you captive. It's a phrase in which means to carry off, if you will, as prisoners of war, to be led away by a victorious army, to, to allow them to conquer you with their thoughts and their ideas and their values and, and their principles, and then to, to lead you off into a place of, of bondage, into a place of hostility, a place away from the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul is saying to stay away from these false teachings if you value your life. See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one leads you astray. Well, if it's true in one sense that most deception clothes itself in truth with a, a little bit of subtle error. If it seems uh, uh, so compelling within a system of reason, you can ask yourselves in the beginning, how come so many Russians at the time of Stalin on his rise, how come they were led astray? Because so much of it to them in that moment, it spoke to what they thought was the most reasonable and the most logical, yet they didn't understand the implications in that moment. When we are comfortable with the language, when it is logical, when it adapts and we believe in it morally, how are we not to be led astray to be captive and to be held hostage by these ideas. The answer is simple and it always has been quite simple. The fullness of Jesus. That we allow the fullness of Christ to be the one that takes our every thought captive to him. For verse 9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What Paul is saying in this moment, he's reminding that Christ is more than merely God-like. He's more than just a man or a moral philosopher. He, he is more than simply overflowing with the character of God. He is the essence of God. He doesn't just have a few attributes here and a, and a few attributes there. He is undivided and in its wholeness, the fullness dwells in Christ, in his exalted state. He is the essential and adequate image of God. He is the icon. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. That phrase, it, it forever blasts the Gnostic idea that exists within the church that the fullness came through some sort of special revelation. And what Paul is saying is to not look at the, the worldly philosophies of the world and to be deceived by them and to be captivated by them or captured by them, but rather that you as the believer would focus your eyes, would focus your gaze, and you would put it on the fullness of Christ. You would put it on the fullness of Christ. 
And as if that's not enough, he goes on in verse 10, after saying, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you, verse 10, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled with this fullness in him. Christ and all his fullness, the very essence of God, undivided from himself, the essential and adequate image of God now dwells in you. He now dwells in you. Now Christ can hold all the fullness of deity, and, but we cannot. But we are full of, of his fullness at the same time, this paradox of understanding and how we reconcile uh, these verses. Thinking of Christ, we realize that because he is infinite, he can hold all the fullness of deity. Whenever one of us finite creatures, when, when we understand that we fill our lives and our hearts and, and our being with that fullness, we understand that we instantly become full of his fullness. We, our, our souls, if you will, they are elastic in, in many ways. That we can be filled just a little bit and we can be filled a whole lot as we lean in and walk according to his spirit. This past week, my daughter Hadley came home with a science project. In that science project that she's got to bring to school on, on Tuesday, the goal of that project is to, to build some sort of car that would travel with a, a blown up balloon in it. And so you attach the balloon in a certain way and you've got to build the car in a certain way. And, and they're learning about potential energy and kinetic energy and, and all of those things. And, and you've got to build this car in such a way that when you let the air out of the balloon, that the car at least moves about three feet on a flat surface. Now you think this is a, an easy project. And we love our teachers dearly. And even when they tell you, don't help your kids in the projects, they know just as well as you and I do that the parents are inevitably going to be sucked in. And once the dads in the group text start posting pictures of what they've done, the, the rival dads begin to, to raise their level of awareness and go, I need to step up my game, if you will, in this moment. And there are so many components to this project that we're doing and working on that, that we'll work on this afternoon to, to get ready to, to give on, on Tuesday. But here's the reality of her project. I asked the question yesterday, is there any way that, that we can get a bigger balloon? And Haley said, no, they, they gave us the balloon and they're very specific on the size that, that everybody has to have the same size balloon. Because my thought was, I'm gonna order on Amazon Prime the biggest balloon I can find. And we're going to make that little car fly. And I told Hadley, I said, well, if we, if we could just fill the balloon up, you see, that, that car is as useless, no matter how we engineer it, no matter how we design it, no matter how, what wheels and tires we use and how firm the axle is and how all of those things turn, without air in the balloon, the car isn't going anywhere. Without it being full of, of air, without it being able to have some sort of, of energy that is produced in the, in the midst of that, the capacity in the air of the balloon is what matters most because without air, no matter how well designed it is, the car's not going anywhere. From the perspective of our humanity, the capacity of our balloons is of greatest importance. That our souls being elastic, so to speak, there are no limits to possible capacity that, that we can arrive at. 
We can always open up to hold more, more of his fullness. The walls can always stretch a little bit further. The roof can always rise a little bit higher. The floor can always hold a little bit more. The more we receive his fullness, the more we then can in turn go and to give that fullness away to other people as we proclaim to a lost, dying world that is far from him that they need Jesus. And in that fullness that we have then been filled up with, we understand that in that fullness, it meets our individual needs as, as people. We understand that in that fullness, as he dwells in us, when, when we don't know the answer to the question before us, he gives us the wisdom we need to discern, to make the choice that is before us. We know that in the midst of that fullness, when we feel weak, he is the one that then makes us strong. We know that in the midst of that fullness, being full of him, when, when we fear and when we worry and when we doubt, we know then he gives us courage. We experience the satisfaction of his fullness, a, a continual stream, if you will, that is overflowing and abounding in our lives as we walk faithfully with him. The text goes on in verse 11 and he says, you've been filled with him who is the head and rule of all authority. And in him, verse 11, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What a peculiar statement for Paul to make. In particular, to, to a non-Jewish audience in this uh, audience that is with us here today. What normally, we, we don't see the, the phrase circumcision in the Bible referring to death, but rather to the common rite on the eighth day by cutting away a, a portion of the flesh, if you will. But here, what it's doing is it's providing a metaphor for the crucifixion. A metaphor for the crucifixion of Christ. You see, his circumcision on the cross, if you will, it involved not the stripping away or the tearing away of a small piece of flesh, but rather the violent removal of his entire body unto death. And they were now, as Paul reminds them, in him, spiritually speaking. And they were now in him sharing, not in circumcision, though that's the metaphor, but rather they were sharing in his death. Their body of flesh was cut away and they died to their former way of life. The goal of the, of the Gnostics and the deceptive philosophies was to bring them back and to pull them back into their old way. What Paul is saying is, no, when you called upon his name to be saved, you are now in him. You have died with him. Having been buried, verse 12, with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Just as the burial of Christ set the seal upon his death, so the Colossians' burial with him in baptism shows that they were truly involved in his death and laid in his grave. It's why we, we say when we baptize here, it's, it is a public testimony before your people that you have genuinely and, and really and, and sincerely have called upon his name and are walking with him in obedience and pursuing him. And so you come to that, to that place, to that baptistry, wherever it is, and you testify before the church in front of you that you are publicly identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That your old way, your old life is gone and now you have been made new. Verse 13, he goes on and he, and he says, you raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses, dead in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all of our sins, all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and he nailed it to the cross. I want you to notice in verse 13, he, he says, you, you, not we, not, not us, not, not them, not, not that person, but, but you, you were dead in your sin. You were dead in your sin. Before Christ, there was no life to you spiritually speaking. You were dead in your sin, dead in your trespasses. But God, being rich in love and merciful, he, he makes you alive together with him, forgiving you of all of your trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against you. He made you whole. When we look at this word trespasses or, or sin, we recognize a couple of things about it briefly. Number one is this, is that sin is a fatal disease that exists in the heart of every person. It is a fatal disease. Because of sin, the, the wages of our sin is, is death. And it is a, a condition that, that exists in the heart of every single person in this room. It exists in the heart of every single person who has ever existed. Sin is a fatal disease that exists in all of our hearts. But sin is not just an act we commit. It is a condition that we are plagued with. It's not a one-time offense. It's not that one time that I, that I messed up all those years ago. No, I am constantly plagued with it, choosing whether or not I would walk in the newness of Christ or in the ways of my flesh, choosing whether or not I would do what is right in the eyes of the Lord or doing what is right in thy own eyes. And that constant tug of war and that constant battle that exists within all of us, it's not just an action that we commit, but rather it is a condition that we are plagued with. And our bad actions are symptoms, merely symptoms of our dead condition. Oftentimes, I think church work, we get guilty and get into the habit of trying to fix the, the exterior. When in the deep inner workings of our heart, we have foundation problems, if you will. And we try to address the symptom. Well, this is the behavior and this is what you, you did. And so we want to modify, we want to correct the behavior. Not rather getting to the, to the root of, of what is actually going on. Not rather willing to get to the, to the sin that's beneath the sin, the cause behind all of these symptoms that are there. Oftentimes, medical professionals will tell you they, they end up treating just the symptom of whatever it is that's going on rather than trying to, to treat the cause. And friends, we, we are here not to treat the symptom. We are here to treat the cause. That sin plagues every one of us and it has made us dead. Many years ago, I heard one pastor describe it this way. We, we act as if when Paul says here and elsewhere in Ephesians, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. We simply act like we, we just have a scrape on our arm and that we somehow mended and fixed the scrape. Or we act like we have blurry vision somehow and that we put our contacts in or our glasses or we had corrective surgery and, and now all of a sudden we can sin. But the reality of the gospel of Jesus is you don't have blurry vision, but rather you are blind and incapable of seeing apart from him. You were dead and he has made you alive in him. He's brought you back from the abyss, if you will. 
Because we are dead in our sins, there is no amount of behavioral modification that can ultimately fix us. Because behavior only affects the outside, but they don't deal with the problem inside. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us, this he set aside and he nails it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed, therefore, because of this, the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God achieved power over all evil powers of this world. He puts them to shame. And what he's doing in this moment and he's doing here is he wants to remind us that the elemental spirits of this world, they still exist. They're still real and, and they're still amongst us. But he's also reminding us at the same time that in him, they have been defeated. That there is victory and victory alone in Jesus. He disarms them. And he puts them to shame. Oftentimes, even this week, I talked with a pastor and we were talking about salvation. And, and, it, and it struck me that in the moment of, of this conversation, oftentimes how so coldly and, and, and mechanically we can describe salvation as if it's some sort of formula. And there's a, there's a there's meaning for that and a reason for that at times, but salvation's plan wasn't calculated dispassionately. It's not a formula to necessarily follow, but rather what it was meant to be done, it was drawn up out of devotion and love from a loving God that loved the beings that he created. And it reminded me of a story that I heard years ago that many of you may have been familiar with, but of an eight-year-old girl who contracted a, a fatal blood disorder. And this blood disorder was, was progressing quickly and, and unchecked, this girl, this eight-year-old girl, she was going to die. What just so happens is somewhere along the line, the doctors discovered that the 10-year-old brother of the eight-year-old girl had contracted something similar and, and he had lived. And in that process, he had developed antibodies that could save his sister. And so the answer to her sister's ill was a simple blood transfusion that would save her life. And so the doctors approached the 10-year-old boy and asked him if he was willing to give his blood. He paused for a moment, he smiled, and then he weakly says to the doctor, yes, I'll do it. So the boy goes to the hospital next to where his sister lay, barely conscious on, on her deathbed. He kissed her on the forehead and he gave her a thumbs up and then he laid down next to her. They put the needle in his arm. They began to draw the blood. As the blood came out of the needle, his face of the young boy, it, it gets pale. He, he began to tremble. And he began to shake. And he looks the doctor dead in the eye and he says, doctor, how long before I die? And the doctor explains back to the boy that he wasn't going to die. He was just giving enough blood to help his little sister. But the boy had gone willingly. The boy had gone thinking that he was giving his life, not just his blood, to save his little sister. That kind of love, I dare say, is, is rare. And the reality of it is that God didn't just die for his siblings. He didn't just die for his families. But, but rather, if it's true that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we were called elsewhere enemies of God. God didn't just do it for family. He did it for those that were enemies of himself. It wasn't just love. It, it was mercy on those that, that didn't deserve it in that moment. A mercy that is extended to you today in this very moment, in this very place through Christ. Will you receive him? 
Will you trust him?